everybody to your rights at work i'm chris garlock here with ed smith hey if you've got questions about your rights at work the ones you have the ones you don't have the ones you wish you had now is the time to give us a call 202-588-0893 that's 202-588-0893 ed smith welcome back brother Good afternoon, Mr. Garlock. Looking forward to a fun show today. All right. If you are an Instacart worker who made deliveries in D.C., or maybe you know somebody who is, you may be eligible for 150 smackers or more in cash payments. And here to tell us more is Emily Barth. Emily's Assistant Attorney General in the OAG's Office of Consumer Protection. She's one of the D.C. Attorney General's lead attorneys. On this case, Emily, welcome to your right to work. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ed. I'm happy to be here. So tell us, why did the D.C. OAG file this lawsuit? What's going on? Yeah, the OAG sued Instacart because Instacart tricked D.C. consumers into believing that the tip that Instacart consumers were leaving was going directly to the worker delivering the order. But that was not the case. That tip um, was actually going directly to Instacart. That conduct is illegal in the District of Columbia, and the OAG sued to put that money back where it belongs, with the workers that delivered the order. Uh, I'm sure it had, it had something to say about this, but let me, uh, uh, there's a whole story behind this, I'm sure. Um, how did something like this happen? I mean, that, that just sounds like, I don't know, outright theft. Well, um, you know, this is a civil enforcement case, so um not here to talk about that, but <laughs> Back in 20 October, or back in 2016, early 2016, um, Instacart, um, their website and their application included a tip. Um, it was a default 10% tip that went to the worker. Um, Instacart changed that in October of 2016, and they um, replaced what was the tip field with something called service, 10%. And that was actually a fee that OAG argued was um, disguised as a tip. It was in the exact same place that the tip used to be um, when it was actually going directly to the company. Um, part of Instacart's original changes also meant that what was um, a 10% default tip became a 0% default tip and consumers had to work hard to actually tip their driver. Um, and so that's why Instacart brought this suit. Um, other, uh, Platforms, national platforms like BuzzFeed, TechCrunch, Vice broke this story, and OAG responded on behalf of DC consumers. Uh, I've got a bunch more questions, but let me yield to the uh, the other attorney on the show at the moment, my co-host Ed Smith. Go ahead, Ed. 
Well, first of all, thanks for coming on. Um, and we're looking forward to the new Attorney General's work and continuing the great work uh, done by Carl Racine and his staff. And, and I, I've noted that uh, staffing is uh, up at the OAG, and that's a very good thing. Uh, you guys are doing incredible work, and we really appreciate it. I will say this. My wife uses Instacart, and so my eyebrows uh, went up. Uh, what ab what about uh, other companies like so you've got for example uh, before Instacart kind of became a thing, you could order directly from like Safeway and Giant and some other companies and and put a tip in. Was there has there been any look to see their practices or other? I don't want to single out a particular grocery chain, but are, are anything that's uh, kind of put on the red flags for you guys over at OAG? Sure, you know, part of our consumer protection practice is always trying to protect consumers from kind of the broader junk fees, which is what we would say these service fees fell under. And so OAG has brought other matters in the past against similar um, companies like DoorDash. Um, and we also recently settled a matter against Grubhub um, where they were also using kind of junk fees or deceptive service fees um, charging their customers. That's, um, you know, I, I think I, because I'm in the labor movement and, and because I, you know, care about uh, workers that are even non-union, um, it, it's a surprise to me. Um, and I, I guess it's probably, I'm glad we're doing it on this show. Uh, has there been any um, other media coverage, for example, from the Washington Post or anybody like that? Because this seems to me consumers really need to be aware of this. You know, um Absolutely, we agree with you. Um, we, you know, OAG put its press release out yesterday and we're really thankful, um, again, to speak with you all. And we really um, are asking for the press's help and the public's help to get the word out about this claims process because it's not automatic. We do not have direct information for the workers um, that are effective or could be eligible to claim this minimum payment of $150. And so we'd really appreciate your listeners help and the help of everyone you know, in the area if they know someone that could be eligible um, or they themselves think they're eligible, we really encourage them to go directly to the claims website, which is instacartworkerrefundsdc.com. That's refunds with an S and look over the materials. Um, if they have any questions about whether they qualify, there's also a toll-free number um, which is 855-529-6820. Um, and folks that qualify are Instacart workers who made a delivery in the District of Columbia to a DC consumer between October 1st, 2016 and April 30th of 2018. And that October 2016 to April um, 2018 time period is the time period for this claims process because that's when Instacart was using this kind of trickery on their website when they had this deceptive service fee in place. We're talking with Emily Barth. She's an assistant attorney general in the OAG's Office of Consumer Protection. She's one of the uh, AG's lead attorneys on this case involving Instacart workers. Um, Emily, you, you touched on a couple of things that I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'd like to delve a little deeper into. You, you sort of answered one of my questions, but I don't really understand it. So you, you I was going to ask how many workers are affected, but you said you don't know. Why is it that you don't know? Well, we don't have um, 
their contact information. Um, we wish we did, we don't, and we're not gonna be able to get it. Um, but we do believe that around this 2016 to 28 time period, that there were approximately 10,000 Instacart workers in the district. And um, we want every single eligible worker to file a claim. We have $1.5 million to put back in the pockets of workers, and we want them to submit their claims and get their money. Um, this is a 60-day claims process. All claims need to be submitted um, by March 25th. And so um, the website, the claims website opened yesterday. We just really um, appreciate your help in getting the word out and um, really, really want folks to get their money. Yeah, we do too. Um, again, and I don't, you know, we're, we're, uh, we live in the weeds on this show, so <laughs> forgive me, but so, so potentially 10,000 workers, a couple of things. One is that that seems like a lot of drivers to me in DC. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, I mean, Instacart certainly knows who they are, right? <laughs> so uh, what's keeping them from doing the right thing here? Well, Chris, I think that's a question for Instacart. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I just want to be really clear, though, on who's eligible. You don't, you, it's not a requirement that you were an Instacart worker that lived in DC. The 10,000 10, um, kind of put who we think are our potential claimants, that includes Instacart workers who live throughout the DMV region. Um, the requirement is that it, you were an Instacart worker during the August, or pardon me, October 1st to 2016 through April 30th, 2018 time period, and you made a delivery in the District of Columbia to a DC consumer. Yeah, that's um, yeah, it's it, it, that's the key, right? Getting the word out, and um, you know, it, it it's hard to do that. Uh, and hopefully, uh, anybody who's listening to this show that has connections to other media outlets, you know, let's let's get it out there. Um, you know, I know we have good listenership here, but to the. I doubt that all 10,000 workers are listening to this show right now, which they were. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I think my wife from time to time does a cash tip, um, which kind of avoids the middleman or the big man, if you will. Um, but not everybody does that. And it's unfortunate that this company has uh, chose to take more money from its workers and put it, probably line it in the pockets of the CEOs and things like that. Um, so how long have you been working on this case? Uh, well, this um, this case was brought back in August of 2020. But um, Ed, if I can touch on one of your points that you just made, you know, sure. clearly, right? Like, um, it would be great if all of the effective workers were listening to this segment right now. Um, but I don't think that's the case. But one thing that your listeners could help us with, even if they aren't impacted or one of these workers, is to share the information about this claims process with their family, with their friends, on their social media on their neighborhood listservs through their next door profiles. Um, the, web, the claims website is instacartworkerrefundsdc.com. They can also go to the OAG's website, which is oag.dc.gov. Um, we've pushed out a press release that has all of this information in it. We've pushed out social media content where they can um, you know, follow OAG's Twitter, Facebook, Medium, um, Instagram, and also get information about the claims website there and just retweet it, repost it, um, and just really help us get the word out that way. We'd be very, very appreciative. 
Sounds like uh, grassroots organizing at the union level. <laughs> oh, great, Chris. It does. It does. Emily, thanks so much. Really appreciate you being with us. This is a really important. We'll definitely uh, get the word out uh, through all our channels. Folks can uh, check out our website, dclabor.org. We will have all of the information that Emily just gave, uh, the links, the phone number. uh, And Emily, we will also share it on our social media. Uh, And frankly, we're probably going to want to check back uh, because the deadline is coming up fairly soon. So we want to check back, see how it's going any way that we can help get this out. We really help it when bosses, especially big multinational bosses, take advantage of their workers. Yeah, thank you. Um, Right, the claims process, everything needs to be submitted by March 25th, 2023. Got 60 days, one is already passed. So please submit um, right away. And it would be a pleasure to come back. Thank you for publicizing and getting the word out. Um, We really appreciate your support. That's Emily Barth. She's one of the D.C. Attorney General's lead attorneys on this important case. Thanks so much, Emily. Next up, unionization increased by over 200,000 in 2022. That's a big number, and that includes 40,000 in Maryland. That was one of the biggest statewide increases in the country, but... And it's a big but union density actually decreased last year. So here to explain what's going on is a frequent flyer here on this show, Margaret Poydock. She's a policy analyst and government affairs specialist at the Economic Policy Institute. Welcome back to Your Rights at Work, Margaret. Thank you for having me, Chris and Ed. Always a pleasure. Well, so let's start with the the, the big view. So we got, you know, somewhere north of 200,000 workers joining unions last year. That seems like a good thing, but density declined. I'm sure there's a simple uh, you know, reason for it, but my math's not so good. Help me out. Yeah, yeah. So um, like you said, um, unionization increased by 200,000. When we talk about unionization um, at EPI, we actually talk about those represented by unions. Um, so that's anyone that's covered by a union contract. So um, Unionization increased by 200,000 workers in 2022, but declined. The share of workers represented by union declined from 11.6% to 11.3% in 2022. The simple answer to that is more workers were unionized in 2022, but but non-union jobs were added at a faster rate um, than union jobs. I think a great data point to point to is March of 2022 was actually the highest number of job openings. Like that's a serious peak on that. Um, so that ex- kind of explains, um, you know, there is an increase, but there's a decline in density. Uh, yeah. So more more union members, but more workers. And so the the uh, the, the pool expanded, basically. Ed Smith? Yeah, um, always interesting to listen to stats. Um, I'm a stat kind of guy. Maybe not everybody. <laughs> not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, but I think it's also interesting that this is workers co- uh, covered by a collective bargaining agreement. And, uh, you know, as we have talked about for the months and months now, that would clearly not include the Starbucks workers because none of them have a contract yet. Um, I know that that's not a ton of numbers, but it does affect the overall uh, uh, statistical um, uh, conclusions. Um, what do you think that? Uh, what do you think that may give us a little look in the crystal ball? How do you think twenty twenty three is going to go? Yeah. So what I say about the 
increase uh, in unionization is clearly there is momentum with Starbucks, Amazon, Trader Joe's, graduate workers. There's a bunch of bunch of workers organizing in many sectors and industries, um, but the the specific union density is just not reflective of workers' interests. It's not aligning. Um, we actually think we actually in our we did a report on the BLS data, and we think uh, we show that if um, if our labor law system wasn't so hard for workers to join unions, we actually have tens of millions of workers um, part of unions that we don't have now. But we there are just obstacles that workers have to face in order to form unions. And also, it takes time to form a union. It takes time to, to negotiate that contract. So uh, while we are seeing a lot of actions happening now, as well as the past couple of years, we probably will see them in the future because of that time it takes for these, um, yeah, these organizing efforts to actually complete and land into a contract. Yeah, quick quick follow up on that is uh, is uh, I think there was some something in your report that talked about the percentage of people who are non union that would want to be in a union if they if they could sign up. You want to just clarify that quickly? Yeah. So um, the the statistic that you're referring to is a is a study by Thomas Kokan. Um, he has been doing some research with MIT for the past I would almost say like several decades. But um, the most recent data he has and from 2017 is if you were to survey, yeah, like you said, non-union workers, um, if you were to join a if you wanted to if you were to join a union tomorrow, would you? And 48 percent said that they would. Um, and that's obviously a huge contrast to just the 11 percent. 11.3% we have of those who are represented by a union right now. We're talking with Margaret Poida. She's policy analyst and government affairs specialist at the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, interesting uh, stat here in your report in the BLS numbers. Uh, the entire increase in unionization in 2022 came from one specific group of workers. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so... The stat you're referring to is workers of color made the entire increase in unionization. So workers of color saw an increase of 231,000, while white workers saw a decrease about 31,000. So that equals out to the 200,000 increase we saw. Um, and I'm sure your listeners know that unions are obviously a powerful tool to help fight against income equity um, and income inequality that we are experiencing now. But um, unions are also a great tool to help fight um, racial wealth gaps. Um, black and brown workers receive like a higher pay, pay, pay premium compared to their non-union counterparts. So it's really great to see that um, there's an increase in workers of color um, in, in these levels because they really do benefit from them. Yeah, it was interesting. I see it's a 12.8% uh, unionization rate for black workers. That compares with 11.2% for white workers, 10% for Latinx workers, and 9.2% for Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, workers. Um, really interesting, Margaret, I thought. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting stuff. Um, and kind of on uh, data points to dig into, we saw another thing to point out, um, the gender gap in unionization actually remains steady. About 11% of both men and women are represented by unions. So it's kind of similar to the overall number that we um, refer to with 11.3%. Yeah, I actually had that on my list to ask you about the gender gap. Um, just sort of explain to folks what that is, why it's important, a little analysis. 
Yeah, um, just why it's important, the gender pay gap exists. Um, again, like uh, benefits, unions benefiting uh, workers of color, unions also benefit women workers. They help reduce the gender pay gap because they're able to negotiate fair pay. Um, and so it's really important, like unions are a very important tool to, to help decrease the gender pay gap that we're experiencing um, today. Ed, comment, question? Yeah, I mean, I I am not aware of any union contract that says we're going to pay men this and we're going to pay women this. It's if you're a worker in particular classification, you're going to get X, uh, maybe some uh, based on uh, length of uh, service in the company or length of service in the classification. But uh, I, I maybe maybe there was some language like that years and years and years ago, but uh, not today. And that's thank God for that. Um, I also want to point out. Uh, and, and I don't want audience, our audience to be misled, uh, even though there was a decrease in the overall numbers of Caucasian union members, that doesn't mean that no Caucasian members were added, right? That's a great question. No, um, that's, yeah, that's the wording you're having. So you're saying no were added in 2022? Right, so you would have some, I'm sure that there were some that were organized and had a contract, but then there were probably others that had left employment or something like that. Are you understanding my question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's correct. It's like, it's, yes, what you said the second part. <laughs> I'm, I'm lost. You have to explain it to me. I, I, I thought I understood, so, now so, I'm lost. So I think it is, Chris, you're in 2021, you're employed and you're covered under a collective bargaining agreement. But some point in 2022, you bolted, you were fired, whatever, you're no longer counted in the numbers. Ed Smith comes along, another Caucasian guy, he gets a job in a union uh, collective bargaining uh, uh, position. So that's evened out. So it's zero in terms of the overall numbers. Is that, am I right? Am I saying that right, Margaret? Yeah, I believe you are saying that correctly. So the, just a little background of like how these numbers are um, calculated, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, this, the union numbers are based off surveys, uh, the, the CPS, which um, is a survey that like asks individuals in this particular case, they ask, are you a union member? If you say yes, they put you towards the, they count you towards the survey. If you say no, and uh, they follow up with you asking, are you represented by a union? If you say yes to that, then you're counted again to that larger number. So that's kind of a background of how um, this data is calculated each year. But but I thought you said that that uh, white workers saw a decrease of thirty one thousand. So that would seem like there were less um, white workers. And I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it it is just to sort of clarify Ed's point. Yeah. So it's like there was a decrease specifically. So there's a roughly the same amount of white workers, just a slight decrease for twenty twenty two, but it's roughly the same amount. Got it. Yeah. All right, folks. Hey, it's it's a lot of numbers, but uh, this is your rights at work. And, uh, you know, numbers are involved. Numbers matter. We're talking with Margaret Poydock here on Your Rights at Work. Margaret's a policy analyst at the Economic Policy Institute, um, where they deal with a lot of numbers. And that's what we do. Um, let's talk about locally. I was really interested to see that Maryland 
was one of the top states with an increase, 40,000. Um, let's see, the other ones were Alabama, which was interesting, also 40,000. Do you want to run down some of those and sort of, I don't know if you have any analysis, but I was just sort of curious to see Maryland in there. I mean, I know a lot of our affiliates have been organizing, but dang. <laughs> yeah, like you said, um, so states with the largest increases were Maryland um, and Alabama, uh, Ohio, Texas, and California. Um, states like California already have a pretty high union density. Um, it's always great to see an increase uh, in uh, union density in states, especially where there are a lot of campaigns. I do caution um, really kind of giving an analysis based off one year because these numbers do fluctuate a lot each year. So um, and apologies, I haven't done a longer trend of comparing the states uh, but yeah, it's it's always just shame on you. Shame on you. <laughs> be nice, Ed. Be nice. But it's always just great to see uh, states with increases, um, and always great to see uh, places that are close to home as well see uh, sizable increases. Yeah, I'm fascinated about Alabama. Um, I didn't know that there was that many uh, campaigns to give 40,000 uh, workers, um, uh, you know, included in collective bargaining and have a contract. That's, that's pretty good news. I, I'm surprised at that. Did, did it surprise you? Yeah, it did surprise me. I, I wish there was a ability, because when we think of Alabama, I think the first thing people probably think of is the Bessemer campaign, which oh, um, yeah. still there is mm -hmm. not like a firm results for that second election, I believe. Um, a lot of those votes are still contested. So it's like, that's clearly not counted, I believe, in that number, but it gives hope. <laughs> um, so that's kind of my my take on that. Yeah, I, I would love to be able to dig deeper into that. In fact, uh, one of our uh, Labor Radio Podcast Network shows is uh, is out of Alabama, Ed Smith, um, Jacob Morrison. Uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. Reach out to Jacob, maybe we can get uh, Jacob to you know jump on the show and uh, you know uh, give us an explanation of what the heck is going on there in Alabama. Yeah, it'd be interesting because uh, I think probably also the the mine workers probably are not included because they don't have a contract as well. So, but so so somebody's organizing somewhere and getting a contract. <laughs> so that 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 would be fascinating to to learn, uh, Chris. For me, Margaret, before we wrap up, uh, let's do a little bit of a dive into uh, the industries that saw the largest increases. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so some of the industries with the largest increases um, was uh, transportation and warehouse, um, arts, entertainment, and recreation, uh, durable goods, and state government. All these industries had above uh, 45,000 increases, uh, 45,000 um, increase, uh, some of them more. Um, yeah, uh, which um, it's hard, again, hard to, to really say, how, are we seeing some trends just based off these data points, but it's always great to see, um, the, it's always interesting to see the different industries that's all increases each year. Um, and sometimes you can tie them to certain uh, campaigns too as well, so. Do you have a sense of, I mean, I know because because you spent a lot of time looking and I, I know you just haven't necessarily studied it in detail, but just do you have a sense of what's going on? I mean, it's, you know, uh, state government, um, which is actually what interesting thing about it, seeing the big jump to state government, 99,000, but you just wish they got that extra thousand to get over 100,000, but just me. Um, but given the Supreme Court ruling on, uh, you know, government employees a few years ago, I would have guessed just as a layman, that we would have seen a decrease. And yet, 
we're seeing a you know almost a hundred thousand increase thoughts yeah it's um again it's one of those things where you have to look at the long-term trend i think i believe the past couple of years there have we have seen decreases in um union membership in particular when it comes to state government employees so I, I, I think, um, again, it's one of those like volatile things. We saw some decreases and then, then this year is actually the first year we're seeing an increase. So I, I, we still have to wait and see. Um, I believe one thing I could say is just the impact of Janice in particular has not been like no one, it's not like it has destroyed unions completely. Like there are still members of unions. Like it has like the effect that I think people thought it was going to have within the first two years. I It's not what we saw. <laughs> Well, and let me just sort of raise a question. I mean, I think what you're talking about with the data up, down, you know, is what they call noise, right? And and you you live with these numbers. And so you kind of have to account for that. So it's sort of, I don't know, it's like temperature things, you know, especially lately. It's, you know, 50 degrees one day, 20 the next. It's still wintertime, you know. I don't know thoughts thoughts on that because I mean you know I've just read a bunch of articles on this BLS data and to, you know some people spinning it one way some people spinning it another way and you know just sort of you know, I always sort of figure well something in the middle is probably actually happening thoughts and then uh, let me get a comment from Ed yeah yeah just real quick thoughts is you know we're seeing this it, there is like overall I, I do want to say like over the past several decades there has been a decline in unionization and. The, like the main contributor to that is current policy and the the inability for workers to join unions and collective bargain in like a timely manner or the obstacles that they're facing. So in order for us to really see some real change, we do have to make restore our labor law. Like that's definitely um, something I, I would point out uh, when we're looking at these numbers, like overall trend, there definitely is a decline and it's by policy choices. And one of the ways to reverse that policy choice, uh, reverse this decline is creating policy choices that, you know, engage people, allow people to join unions. No, and I think your point is exactly right. I mean, the, the the key thing, which is, of course, not in the BLS data, is all the tens of million of people who want to join unions. And, and we're seeing that we don't even have to have surveys to say that. Um, we know it, as Ed was pointing out earlier, from Starbucks workers. I mean, if Starbucks just said, uh, okay, yes, you know, everybody in Starbucks who wants to be in a union, you'd have probably not tens of millions there. But, uh, you know, if you look at Starbucks, Amazon, Bessemer, um, anyway, Ed, yeah, uh, first of all, Janice, uh, the reference to Janice, for those of you who don't remember, Thank is you. a court court case that came out of the Supreme Court that basically said that employees do not have to join a union um, and do not have to pay a fee to be part of uh, a union. Um, and the union, many unions thought that that was going to decimate them. And I think that that was, I don't know if uh, that was universal, but we all knew we had work to do. And, and in some ways, it, it it forced the unions to kind of get back out in the street, back out in the shops, back out in the hospitals, talk to your nurses, your workers. And for our union, as a matter of fact, uh, it's had no effect. We've maintained almost a number of other areas. Um, yeah, the, the solution, one of the solutions, clear, that's one of the solutions, is us getting back and talking to one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about 
being, you know, why the union is strong, why why the union can help you be stronger at work, why why it can get you better benefits, wages. We all know the data on that. I think it's like 18% more pay for unionized employees in the 2022 um, BLS data. And then the PRO Act, which you didn't refer to by name, but it's it's legislation to try to try to level that playing field. Do you want to talk just briefly about that before we, Chris is going to kick us all out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So PRO Act, um, or the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, is a very comprehensive bill. Um, I just, it would just essentially make it easier for workers to join unions as well as negotiate and uh first contract. Um, so it, it includes a lot of reforms that um, currently both legal as well as uh, illegal tactics that for employers implement. So like if an employer um, uh, violates labor law, there's civil monetary penalty, civil monetary penalties that this bill would enact. So fine employers for actually breaking labor law. It also um, ban makes um, some legal tactics that like a that, uh, sorry, it, it advances, it makes some legal tactics such as captive audience meetings, unfair labor practices. Um, so it's it, it contains a lot of stuff. You could probably have a whole episode on this. Um, but I will also yeah. say that uh, one other reform that we really pushed for too is the Public Service Freedom to Negotiate Act, which focuses on public sector workers and providing them a federal um, law. So that's another thing we don't want to lose here that actually will like, will impact um, or addresses the decision in Janus too. Yeah, that's a great point because up until just a few years ago, the city of Alexandria, the city of uh, the Fairfax, uh, city of Fairfax, they did not allow public sector employees to unionize. That's true in Georgia. That's true in Alabama. I remember years ago uh, when I worked for another union, uh, uh, the International Brotherhood of Police Officers had a huge local in Atlanta. And, and as a newcomer in my early 20s, I was like, well, why would they be in a union? Well, they were in a union, even though they couldn't negotiate collective bargaining agreements, they had tremendous power at the state house and in the city, in the city of Atlanta. So they got their contracts basically through uh, the, uh, the city council. Uh, and and so they would not be counted in this data, but they clearly had uh, strong um, bargaining power. It just was not uh, culminate. It did not culminate itself into a collective bargaining agreement. Margaret, thanks so much for explaining and 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 being willing to to dive into the weeds with us here on your rights to work. Uh, as always, really appreciate uh, all the great work that your whole team does at the Economic Policy Institute, and for being with us on today's show. Thank you for having me. All right, that's Margaret Poida. She's policy analyst and government affairs specialist at the Economic Policy Institute, epi.org, for that report and so much more. Your Rights at Work was engineered today by Kalia Chapman. I produced the show, and Ed Smith is my co-host. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for Sex, Politics, and Religion here on WPFW 89.3 FM. Is a public